Thanks very much, Lindsay, and thanks for the nice introduction. A little too generous, though. Um, there will be some redundancy between Lindsay's talks and mine, and that's intentional because from a technical standpoint, you have to understand the clinical, and from the clinical standpoint, you must understand the technical, and that deals with all of nuclear cardiology. But just as a survey, how many of you have ever done first-pass imaging? Oh, wow. How many of you and how many of those have done it with exercise? Okay. How many of you currently do equilibrium blood pool imaging? Not so many. Uh, how many have ever done exercise equilibrium imaging? A very few. Okay. Uh, but uh, this is something we need to know. It's our, it's our legacy in nuclear cardiology, and perhaps more importantly, and why you're here, it's on the boards. So, All right, first pass imaging. All right, as Lindsay explained, uh, we inject a bolus of radioactivity. It enters the superior vena cava into the right ventricle, out the pulmonary outflow tract, through the lungs, into the left ventricle, and out the aorta. And you want to inspect uh, the images just to make sure there's no ventricular anomalies, just get an idea of the transit of the bolus. But for the calculation of the left ventricular ejection fraction, we're only interested in this period of time when the bolus traverses the left ventricle. Now we select those images, select just the images when the bolus is traversing the left ventricle, and we put a region of interest around the left ventricle, trying as carefully as possible to select the aortic valve plane. And from that, we get a time activity curve. And you can see the activity increasing during ventricular diastole, decreasing during ventricular systole, diastole, systole, diastole, systole. And in this case, which is a nice normal example, we have only three or perhaps four cardiac cycles to analyze. So this tells you that if you have a patient move or if you have an arrhythmia, you're out of luck. You have missed it. So that's one of the reasons why first pass imaging is so technically demanding. Another reason other than what Lindsay uh, already alluded to. We put a background region of interest, it's usually this C-shaped region outside of the apex, and that gives us a background curve. We subtract the background curve from the left ventricular time activity curve, and we get our net left ventricular time activity curve, again, giving us three or maybe four cardiac cycles uh, for analysis. Now from these selected background subtracted uh, curves, we're able to put a much more refined region of interest around the left ventricle and get a left ventricular time activity curve, which you see here. Now, this is generally a very high temporal resolution curve. We usually get about 50 points in the cardiac cycle. And with gated blood pool imaging, maybe 32. With gated perfusion spect, maybe 16, maybe 8. With gated tomographic spect, maybe 8 frames per cardiac cycle. So this is the technique that gives us the highest temporal resolution of all of our radionuclide imaging techniques. 
And because of the high temporal resolution left ventricular volume curve, we can do first derivative analysis and derive a peak filling rate, a peak emptying rate, time to the peak filling rate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're dealing with manipulating a time activity curve, first pass imaging is going to give you your best information. Uh, but at the end of the day, what we're most interested in is the left ventricular ejection fraction. Now, also, we are able to planimeter, basically put a region of interest around the heart at diastole and at systole, and from that, we are able to get end diastolic volume and end systolic volume. This uses a Dodge-Sandler uh, formula, very similar to what you use for cardiac catheterization. It's not a bad technique, but as you very well know, it assumes that the left ventricle is a prolate ellipse, or sort of a bullet, and anytime the ventricular geometry uh, uh, is not uh, that standard form, the calculations of volume uh, are erroneous. So we do get volumes, but again, it's based upon a single dimensional analysis using the formula for a prolate ellipse. Okay, uh, as Lindsay mentioned, we can do rest and stress first pass imaging. Uh, this can be done with the patient uh, exercising on a treadmill or on an upright bicycle. It's very technically demanding, uh, but this is an example of a normal study. You see it rest diastole and systole, and it stress diastole and systole. Normally, there is a decrease in diastolic volume, as you can see here, and a decrease in end systolic volume as we go from rest to stress, and there's also a corresponding increase in left ventricular ejection fraction. Now, what are these images here? These are our ejection fraction images. And you read these, you basically sort of want to see a rainbow of colors progressing from the apex to the base of the heart. And it's basically end diastole minus end systole. Well, why do we get these colors? Well, if we go from diastole to systole, you see the ventricle sort of moves away here. And so it's essentially a 100% ejection fraction. But as we go more towards the base, there's still ventricle left there, ventricular blood pool left at end systole. And so therefore, the regional ejection fraction is less. And so what you want to see is sort of this progressive rainbow of colors. And as we go from rest to stress, the intensity of the rainbow basically increases. And so that's what you want to see, this rainbow that increases in intensity. And that's a normal stress response to first pass exercise. Okay. And the ejection fraction, uh, in this case, at rest was 52%, and at stress is 72% we would like to see a 5% or greater increase in left ventricular ejection fraction during dynamic exercise. And that constitutes a normal exercise response. Okay, here is an abnormal study. All right, here's diastole and systole, diastole and systole. Well, right off the bat, you can see that your end systolic volume increases during exercise rather than decreasing. 
The other thing is, if you look carefully, the excursion of the inferior wall is not as great as it was at rest. Now let's go to our rainbow, and here you have the nice rainbow of colors going from the apex to the base. Look what happens to the rainbow here. We sort of lose it here in the inferior wall, showing you that you have a decreased stress regional ejection fraction inferiorly. So this study shows a increase in end systolic volume and a stress-induced regional wall motion abnormality. Okay, an increase in exercise, an increase in, um, uh, excuse me, a, a decrease in ejection fraction during exercise and a increase in end systolic volume are very sensitive but very nonspecific indicators of coronary artery disease. It can occur in valvular heart disease, it can occur in cardiomyopathy. However, a stress-induced regional wall motion abnormality is a very specific indicator of coronary artery disease. So the most specific indicator of coronary artery disease in a stress first-pass study is a stress-induced regional wall motion abnormality but less sensitive. Its sensitivity in detecting coronary disease is only perhaps about 75%. A decrease in ejection fraction or an increase in end systolic volume is much more sensitive, about 90% sensitivity, but a lower specificity. One other thing that you want to look out for in first pass imaging is artifacts due to the descending thoracic aorta. The aorta comes up and loops around and comes down behind the heart. And remember, your bolus is not, you know, finite. Uh, it, it actually stretches out. And so oftentimes you see this little bump coming down off the base of the inferior wall. That's the descending thoracic aorta. So don't misconstrue that as a regional wall motion abnormality. All right, so in this case, the <coughs> resting ejection fraction was 57. The stress ejection fraction was 53. So we have a drop in ejection fraction, which is a sensitive indicator of coronary disease, but not very specific. But we also have <coughs> a regional wall motion abnormality, which is very specific. All right, let's take a look at this case. All right, here we have a rest and stress study. Well, just off the bat, you can see that during stress, the end systolic volume increases. That is abnormal. Look at our rainbow of colors. Here we have the rainbow, and instead of the rainbow becoming more intense, it becomes less intense, indicating a less vigorous ejection fraction. So here, the resting ejection fraction is 48, the stress ejection fraction is 57. Well, why is that? Probably because we had an increase in end diastolic volume. And here you see diastolic volume 182 up to 273. Here the volume increases from 95 to 117. So this is an abnormal response with an increase in volumes and a decrease in ejection fraction. Turns out that this patient has valvular heart disease. So this is not specific for coronary artery disease. There's no regional wall motion abnormality associated. All right. 
first pass evaluation of the right ventricle. This can be done, and it's actually very simple. Uh, Lindsay mentioned that we can do this now with spec-gated blood pool imaging, but it's actually easier with first pass. You get a diastolic image and an end systolic image of the right ventricle. Very simple. Uh, however, think about this bolus passing through the heart. Remember, with the left ventricle, you know, it goes through the right ventricle, the lungs, back to the left ventricle, and even with that, we only have about three or four cardiac cycles. Well, think about this bolus passing through the right ventricle. You might only get one cardiac cycle or maybe two cardiac cycles to analyze. So injecting a very fast bolus is a tricky operation in evaluating the right ventricle. So if you're specifically interested in evaluating the right ventricle, you need to slow down your bolus. So instead of just injecting as hard as you possibly can, just sort of do a gradual injection. And that'll give you more cycles to analyze as the bolus passes through the right ventricle. Of course, in doing that, that's going to degrade the analysis of the left ventricle. So it's hard to get an optimal evaluation of right and left ventricle with first pass imaging. And here is the diastolic systolic image of the right ventricle within a right ventricular ejection fraction of 52. Normal is over 40%. One of the difficult things is evaluating where the pulmonary outflow tract is. You know, where's the pulmonic valve? How far up do you go? And this is the problem uh, with SPECT imaging as well. So the problem is where to draw the limits of the pulmonary outflow tract. That's one of the downsides of evaluating right ventricular ejection fraction. All right, something else with first pass imaging is we can also look not at the transit of the bolus through the right ventricle or the left ventricle, but instead we can look at the transit of the bolus through the lungs. What does this give us? This allows us to analyze left to right shunts. Now you think, well, this is something we do with echo, although it's not done all that accurately with echo. But if you want to quantify your left to right shunt and get a QPQS, you can do it with first pass imaging. And this is the concept. All right, we're doing a first pass study, and here we're putting a region of interest over the lung, like I just showed you. Well, the bolus passes through the lung, okay? And then it goes into the left ventricle, alpha systemic circulation, comes back to the right heart, and through the lung again. So we get a recirculation curve. Again, out the systemic circulation, back to the right ventricle, back to the lungs, and you get another recirculation. So in the presence of no left to right shunt, you get initial curve, recirculation one, recirculation two. Okay, well, what happens if you have a left-to-right shunt? Well, you sort of, you sort of short, circus, short, short circuit this whole operation and that the bolus goes through the lungs into the left ventricle, but some of it, instead of going out to the systemic circulation, goes back into the right heart again and quickly goes back into the lungs. So your recirculation curve is premature. And same with the second recirculation curve. So you wind up getting a premature recirculation curve through the lungs. Now, when we put our region of interest over the lungs, 
we don't see these discrete three curves. We see a net curve, which if you look at this top line, goes up here, and then instead of going way down to zero, it sort of has another bump and another bump. And so that's what the curve looks like. So we have something called deconvolution analysis, which is done by fitting cosine functions to this curve. And it basically allows us to separate out the first, the second, and the third curves. So we apply deconvolution analysis to our first pass curve over the lung. And this gives us the shunt fraction, which is k, which is k is equal s1 divided by p. So, and the QPQS ratio is 1 divided by 1 minus K. And this is the value that we report, is the QPQS. And it's a pretty good quantitative analysis of left to right shunts. Now, the problem here is, is this technique is very technically dependent. And what are the problems? Well, prolongation of the bolus is one of the biggest problems. Here on the top line, we have a discrete bolus. It's, in, it's just tiny. It happens in zero milliseconds. And you can see that you get a curve that looks something like this. And we can separate out the initial and the recirculation curves pretty easily. Look what happens as our bolus delivery gets more prolonged here you see the curve looks something like that. And there's a lot of error introduced in, in separating out these various curves by deconvolution analysis. So this is something that degrades our curve and decreases the accuracy of the test, is prolongation of the bolus. Something that's worse than prolongation of the bolus is giving a double bolus. And here is this same finite bolus with this nice curve. But look what happens if you happen to have fractionated the bolus. You give one little part of the bolus here and one other little part of the bolus here. Look how bizarre this curve becomes. And obviously, there is great error introduced in separating out the first transit versus the recirculation curves. So fractionating your bolus is the worst possible thing that you can do. And Lindsay reminded you that the best way to do this, to inject a first pass study, is to load the bolus into your plastic tubing, ideally with a little bubble before and after it. And once it's in the tubing, just push like crazy and you'll get a nice bolus that goes through the heart. If you try to inject this bolus out of the syringe, you're going to wind up with this double bolus because some of it will go from the syringe into the tubing into the patient. But then as you inject your flush, then you'll get the second curve come around. So in order to get a good bolus and to prevent this fractionation, you really got to load the bolus into the IV plastic tubing. Okay, so enough for first pass imaging. Uh, going on to gated blood pool imaging. All right, uh, Lindsay explained the, uh, the different labeling techniques, the in vivo technique, the modified in vivo technique, and the in vitro method. You've got to know the differences between these techniques in terms of how they're done and also the labeling efficiency. 
the lowest labeling efficiency with in vivo, the highest with in vitro. This is something you've really got to know for the exam. All right, what are the clinical applications of gated blood pool imaging? Well, this list actually is from back in the early 90s before echocardiography became so powerful and so technically refined. So you can see all, I'm not going to read all these things here, but uh, because echo is a lot less expensive, it's available at the patient's bedside, uh, and it doesn't involve ionizing radiation, it has taken over, and I think appropriately taken over, many of these tasks. So what do we use blood pool imaging for? Well, one of the main reasons is to assess patients on chemotherapy, looking for cardiotoxicity, and also for evaluating patients with heart failure to determine if their ejection fraction is appropriately low enough for uh, an intraventricular assist device. Those are two of the main uh, applications. There are some other applications, particularly if echocardiography is technically not so successful. All right, the ejection fraction is very important in terms of patient prognosis. Uh, these are data from way back in 1983, but it was from a multi-center post-infarct research trial. And as you can see, as the ejection fraction progressively decreases, the one-year cardiac mortality progressively increases. Now, this curve probably isn't as steep now with the uh, improved methods we have in treating heart failure in patients post-MI, but we still get this very marked increase the lower the ejection fraction is. Uh, the same with the exercise ejection fraction, uh, and this applies actually to first pass imaging. Uh, the lower the peak ejection fraction, the lower the event-free survival rate. And you can see this on this curve. Okay, so what about the current applications of gated blood pool imaging? As I mentioned, the most common is to evaluate patients for doxorubicin uh, toxicity. And serial testing is the appropriate way to follow these patients. Uh, first, let's look at patients with a baseline ejection fraction of 50% or greater. We do the baseline MUGA scan within the first 100 milligrams per meter squared of doxorubicin. Ideally, it should be done prior to the uh, initiation of chemotherapy. The next MUGA is done when the patient has received between 250 to 300 milligrams per meter squared of doxorubicin. And then, assuming everything is okay with the ejection fraction, the next one at 450 milligrams per meter squared. Uh, after that, you probably need to do a MUGA after each subsequent dose if the patient gets this high in terms of doxorubicin dose. All right, what constitutes evidence of cardiotoxicity? And again, this is starting with a baseline ejection fraction greater than 50%. If the ejection fraction decreases by 10% or more and, the key word is and, reaches a value of less than 
So if the patient starts off with an ejection fraction of 73% and in the next evaluation falls to 53%, no chemotherapy toxicity because it hasn't gone below 50. On the other hand, if it starts off at 58% and it goes to 49, no, hasn't dropped by 10 points. But if it goes from 58 to 46, yes, cardiotoxicity. So what needs to happen is the patient has to take a holiday from chemotherapy, then after some period of time determined by the referring physician, you repeat the MUGA, and if it has risen above 50, then go ahead and do your next chemotherapy. All right. The other situation is if you have a baseline ejection fraction of less than 50%. Okay, here the criteria for cardiotoxicity is a decrease of 10% from baseline or, or if the ejection fraction falls below 30%. So, if you start off with an ejection fraction of 48%, and it goes to 36%, yes, cardiotoxicity. If you start off with an ejection fraction of 35% and it goes to 28%, yes, cardiotoxicity. And the same thing goes that you need to take a holiday from chemotherapy and then reassess the ejection fraction. Hopefully it's come back up again. All right, interpreting a gated blood pool study. Generally, we do three views, and we'll talk about the positioning of the patient in just a little bit, but we do a best septal LAO view, we do an anterior view, which is 45 degrees less oblique, and we do a left lateral view, which is 45 degree more oblique. In the LAO view, we assess wall motion of the posterior wall and the septum and the infraapical region. In the anterior view, we assess wall motion of the anterior wall and the apex, and if we're lucky, we can see some of the inferior wall. The left lateral view is done specifically to look at wall motion of the inferior wall which isn't seen very well in the LAO view because it's overlapped by the apex and isn't seen very well in the anterior view because it's overlapped by the right ventricle. So again, we wanna have a nice view of the inferior wall. Okay. As Lindsay has explained, we carefully put a region of interest around the left ventricle at diastole and at systole with a background region of interest one pixel away from the end systolic border, infralaterally being careful to exclude the spleen and the descending thoracic aorta. From that, we derive a left ventricular volume curve. In an LAO view, gated blood pool study, we would like to get a 32 frame per cardiac cycle volume curve. This allows us an accurate ejection fraction and also high enough temporal resolution to evaluate peak emptying rates and peak filling rates. 
So in this case, you see a pre-ejection period, rapid systolic emptying, end systole, rapid diastolic filling, period of diastasis, and the left atrial kick. Generally, you should see all of those features on your left ventricular volume curve. We also can derive other parameters. We can find the geometric center of the left ventricle and divide up the left ventricle into sectors and get regional ejection fractions. This is very popular in Europe. It never has caught on in the United States. We can get an ejection fraction image looking at the amplitude of contraction, very similar to what I showed you before with first pass imaging and also, as Lindsay has shown you, a phase image where we look at the onset of contraction right after the pre-ejection period. When does the left ventricle and right ventricle begin to lose counts? That's the onset of contraction, and that's our phase image. And it, in this case, you can see that all of the right ventricular and left ventricular pixels are pretty much contracting at the same time. The right atrial and left atrial pixels are 180 degrees out of phase. We take this image and we do a histogram of those counts, and you can see that all these pixels are contracting pretty much at the same time. Here are the atrial pixels 180 degrees out of phase with the left ventricle. So in analyzing a gated blood pool imaging images, you want to look at the images, you want to analyze the left ventricular volume curve, you can do regional ejection fractions if you like, and you can look at the phase image. In this case, the ejection fraction is normal, 66%. Okay, you've got to know the formula for left ventricular ejection fraction. And it's very, very important that you understand this formula because all of the things that will create errors in the ejection fraction can be surmised by evaluation of this formula. The formula is end diastolic counts minus background divided by end systolic counts minus background divided by end diastolic counts minus background. This formula is simplified to diastolic counts minus systolic counts divided by diastolic counts minus background. You need to memorize this formula because if something happens to your study that says, oh, okay, the background is too high, okay? What's that gonna do to the ejection fraction? It's the subtrahend of the denominator of the equation, and therefore the ejection fraction increases. What happens if your end systolic counts are too high? Well, it's the subtrahend of the numerator, and therefore your ejection fraction is going to decrease. So by knowing this formula, you can predict anything that's gonna go wrong with your ejection fraction calculation. All right, let's look at some clinical studies. All right. I always put a little cursor in the center of the left ventricle. This helps me look at regional wall motion. You can see here that the lateral wall is contracting very nicely, moving towards the cursor. Notice that the septum is dyskinetic, moving away from the cursor. And here, the infroapical region is also dyskinetic, moving away from the cursor. So this ventricle has big-time regional wall motion abnormalities. Here's the anterior view. Again, use your cursor. You can see that the apex is dyskinetic, 
and the anterior wall is markedly hypokinetic. Right ventricle is contracting very nicely. Here's the regions of interest, diastole, systole, background, all look pretty good. Um, here the ejection fraction is, there's a number here someplace. Where did it go? Uh, where is it, where is it? <laughs> here it is, 23%, okay, all right. All right, here's another example. Here you have, look at the left ventricle. You see that the ventricle is dilated and diffusely hypokinetic, but all the walls are coming in. Here is the right ventricle. It's dilated and very markedly hypokinetic. What's this area here? This is the spleen. Why is it so hot? Well, the spleen has blood, but it also accumulates damaged red cells. So if you have a very hot spleen that indicates you've damaged your red cells during the labeling procedure and they've been sequestered by the spleen, which is okay, but that's just what happens. So perhaps a board question, if you saw an image with a very hot spleen, what would be the most likely labeling method that was used? Think about that. All right, here's the gated blood pool study in the anterior view. Again, diffuse left ventricular hypokinesis. Here, ejection fraction is 25%. So diffuse cardiomyopathy. Let's take a look at this study. All right. Here you look at the left ventricle. The left ventricle is contracting like crazy. Very good contraction. Right ventricle, however, is markedly hypokinetic. So this is something that is specifically affecting the right ventricle. What is this structure coming down over here? This is a big dilated ectatic descending thoracic aorta. Here's the anterior view in that patient. Left ventricle contracting well. Right ventricle markedly hypokinetic. Also, what's this structure? a big dilated pulmonary outflow tract. This is a patient with chronic pulmonary emboli, causing pulmonary hypertension, right ventricular hypokinesis, but the le uh, left ventricle is perfectly normal. All right, here's the left ventricular ejection fraction, which is 67%. You can do a right ventricular ejection fraction from a gated blood pool study. It's a little tricky because the right atrium lies immediately behind the right ventricle in the LAO projection. So if you want to try, what you can do is about a 20 degree LAO, and that nicely separates the right atrium from the right ventricle and also keeps the left ventricle separated. So it's not a standard ASNIC approved approach, but it works pretty well if you're interested in getting a right ventricular ejection fraction from a gated blood pool study. All right, how accurate is gated blood pool imaging? Really uh, very good. Its correlation is quite good, 93% against contrast ventriculography. Remember, contrast ventriculography is a geometric technique. It's using the Sandler-Dodge formula to basically planimeter the left ventricle in the anterior or RAO view. Gated blood pool imaging is a count rate method, okay? Um, 
It's a very precise technique. There is about a 3.7% variability if you reacquire the study. In other words, you image a patient, analyze it, then re-image the patient right after that. Good, good uh, reproducibility. If you take the same study and just reprocess it, very good reproducibility of only 2%. Uh, Intra-observer agreement, if I read the study twice, very good, 1.4% variability. Inter-observer agreement, if I read it and you read it, also very good, 1.6% variability. So this is a very robust technique, and that's why it is still considered the gold standard for left ventricular ejection fraction determination. Better than echocardiography, better than gated perfusion spect, and better than first pass imaging. All right, something else we can do from a gated blood pool study is evaluate diastolic dysfunction. Remember we have a 32 frame per cardiac cycle left ventricular volume curve that we can analyze in terms of rates of filling and rates of emptying. Okay, let's take a look at this study. Well, to me the left ventricle looks pretty good. One of my residents said it looked like the diastolic filling phase was pretty slow, but he's a lot younger than I am, so I wasn't so sure about that. Uh, an artifact I want to point out. See this big photopenic shadow surrounding the heart? Looks like a giant pericardial effusion. It's not. It's breast attenuation. This is the patient's left breast. So don't be fooled by breast attenuation mimicking a pericardial effusion. Okay, here's the anterior view. It's pretty unremarkable. All right. So here's our left ventricular volume curve. Systolic emptying, diastolic filling. Well, my resident was right. Diastolic filling does look pretty slow. It doesn't, you don't have this rapid diastolic filling in the period of diastasis. So how do we analyze filling rates? Well, if you have a curve and you're trying to look at a rate you do a first derivative, or the DVDT. In this case, it's not volumes, it's change in counts with time. So the first derivative of this volume curve is shown here. So when the count rate is progressively decreasing, the first derivative is negative. When the count rate is increasing, the first derivative is positive. So this is the peak filling right here. And then here we have another peak filling, but that's atrial filling, so that doesn't count. So we look at this. Here the peak filling rate is 1.17 end diastolic volumes per second. You need to remember this unit, end diastolic volumes per second. Okay? Normal is greater than 2.5. That's for, quote, younger individuals greater than three for older individuals. This limit is getting higher as I'm getting older. So, but anyway, somewhere above 2.5. So 1.7 is clearly abnormal. And this is a pretty accurate way of looking at peak filling rates and diagnosing diastolic dysfunction. And as you all very well know, about 50% of patients presenting with heart failure 
don't have systolic dysfunction but have diastolic dysfunction. And this is a very nice way of looking at it. You can, of course, do this with echo by looking at the EF slope, but this is probably an easier and actually more accurate way. Okay, quality control, very, very important. And Lindsay certainly mentioned this, but it's something that uh, I need to reiterate. All right, quality control for equilibrium radionuclide ventriculography. All right, I alluded to this before. You have to position the patient correctly. And we call this a best septal LAO view. This is the first image that the technologist acquires. So what he or she does is basically puts the camera in the LAO position, sort of a generic 45 degrees LAO. Well, clearly, people's hearts are in different orientations. Some people's hearts are a little dextro-rotated. Some people's hearts are levo-rotated. So now what the technologist does is using the persistence scope, moves the camera either leftward or rightward to get an image that looks like this. And the left ventricle should be separated from the right ventricle clearly. And also, the left ventricle should look like an egg with the apex pointing directly down at 6 o'clock. So this constitutes appropriate positioning and allows us to optimally separate out the left ventricle from the right ventricle, the left ventricle from the left atrium, and the left ventricle from the ascending aorta, thereby allowing us to get an accurate assessment of left ventricular counts and left ventricular ejection fraction. Okay, if the ventricle is too, if the camera is too anterior, you're going to get an image that looks like this, looks like an anterior view with the left ventricular apex pointing southeast. The problem with this is that it's difficult to separate out the left ventricle from the ascending aorta and we get errors in ejection fraction right here. On the other hand, if the camera is too lateral in relation to the left ventricle, we get an image that looks like this. And here the problem is it's difficult to separate out the left ventricle from the left atrium. This is a common error on the part of the technologist because in this view, the left ventricle looks very bright because it's close to the camera. So it looks great, but the problem is, is the left atrium is sitting right behind it and causing a problem with uh, 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 the ejection fraction. And these are actual images rather than the cartoon. This is a correct LAO view. This is a view that's too anterior with the heart down to the uh, southeast, and here's a view with the heart down to the southwest, which is too lateral. And here's another very hot spleen. If you had been thinking about this, the technique that causes sequestration of red cells into the spleen the most is the in vitro method, because this, the red cells are out of the patient for the longest time sitting in that vial at room temperature, and you also have to agitate the vial, so there is more chance that the red cells are damaged, and therefore more chance that they get sequestered into the spleen. 
With the in vivo method, which of course gives the lowest tagging efficiency, there's the least chance of damaging red cells because all the red cells are all still in the body the whole time. Okay. Errors in calculating ejection fraction. Here's end diastolic volume. Here's end systolic volume. Well, actually, the left ventricle is right down here, and this end systolic volume has now encompassed the left atrium. So end systolic counts are too high. Remember, that's the subtrahend of the numerator of the equation, and therefore the ejection fraction is going to be artifactually low. Here looks like a nice region of interest for background, one pixel outside of the left ventricle, but unfortunately it's overlying the spleen. So background counts are too high. Remember, background is the subtrahend of the denominator. And therefore, that's going to decrease the denominator and increase the ejection fraction. Other errors are related to gating, and you'll hear more about this later. Uh, what happens if the patient has electrical alternands and you only gate the tallest R wave? So here's a tall one, you miss the small one, you wind up with a W-shaped left ventricular volume curve generally indicative of electrical alternands. What happens if you have small R waves and peaked T waves? Well, you gate both the R and the T. So if you go from the R to the T, that's systolic emptying. If you go from the T to the R, that's diastolic filling. You add these together in the process of your summed gated images, and you wind up with a flat line. What happens if your T waves are peaked and your R waves are very small? You gate on the T waves rather than the R waves. This gives you an upside down left ventricular volume curve and a negative ejection fraction, surely a bad prognostic indicator. Okay, so how do you handle this? Well, back in the old days, when we gated a study, we would get a little ECG strip coming out of our camera. This was very nice and it showed gating marks. And it showed, oh yeah, her were gating on the R wave and gating on the T wave. And so this would tell the technologist, well, we don't want to do that or we'll wind up with a flat line ejection fraction. So they repositioned the leads to maximize the R wave amplitude and minimize the T wave amplitude. And now you see we're gating on the R wave. Well, those were the good old days, but the manufacturers thought, well, this is too complicated to have an ECG strip on the camera. So you don't have this anymore. So all you have is the heart rate that the camera is sensing. So how do you figure out if you're gating correctly? Well, what the technologist has to do is take the patient's pulse. Okay, the pulse is 70, but the camera says the patient's got a heart rate of 140. Well, sounds like you're gating on the R wave and the T wave. Or if the pulse is 70 and the camera says the heart rate is 35, probably gating on every other R wave and you've got electrical alternands. So there's a little inference, but generally the pulse should match the heart rate that is sensed by the camera. 
We can also degrade our volume curves in the process of temporal smoothing. And Lindsay showed some very nice examples of this when you do spatial smoothing. You basically smear out the images and you wind up getting different counts of diastole and systole. Well, the same sort of thing happens with temporal smoothing. If you've got a poor count density curve, you're left ventricular ejection fraction tends to be very irregular, your volume curve tends to be very irregular. Well, what temporal smoothing does is it takes counts that are sort of away from their neighbors and raises them. So it'll raise this one and lower this one, and we wind up a nice smooth curve, but it lowers the ejection fraction. And so this is one of the reasons why you want to get a high count density, good quality curve, because it avoids the temporal smoothing process that will artifactually lower your ejection fraction. So this is in your syllabus, and I'm not going to go through all of these things, but basically all the things that will underestimate and overestimate the ejection fraction. And we've gone over examples of this. Please go over this carefully because on your exam, you will definitely have questions about technical things that tend to cause the EF to be over and underestimated. All right, Lindsay showed some nice examples of SPECT imaging. Uh, just to reiterate the technology, this is something that probably, a lot, how many of you all do SPECT gated blood pool imaging? Just a few. Okay, it's a very nice technique. Uh, it adds to um, the information that you get uh, from planar gated blood pool imaging. Remember with planar imaging, we're only looking at counts. We don't get volumes. We don't get left ventricular volumes from planar imaging. There's a way to do this. It's very tricky. You have to draw a blood sample and you have to count it under the camera in the same geometry as the left ventricle. This was popularized by researchers at Yale but never really caught on clinically. There's a lot of errors. So the bottom line is we get counts, but we don't get volumes with planar imaging. But with SPECT, we're able to planimeter the ventricle and get volumes. Also, we're able to look at the right ventricle. Very nice, we get a much better look at regional wall motion abnormalities. Admittedly, we don't do SPECT these days to look at regional wall motion abnormalities much, but we certainly can see them better with SPECT. And there's another advantage is that you get paid there's an add-on code for doing SPECT imaging. So not the most altruistic reason, but a reason. Anyway, you image in a 180 degree arc, 45 degree RAO to 45 degree LPO, just like perfusion imaging, six degree angular stops, one a minute per stop. It's a 30 minute acquisition. Uh, you can do eight or 16 frames. Uh, we do 16 frames. I think uh, that's pretty adequate. The problem with 16 frames is each of the frames is of relatively low count density, so you might opt for eight frames if you've got an obese patient or poor labeling or something that causes a decrease in your um, count density within the left ventricular blood pool. This is a gated blood pool spec study. Very nice. Here's the left ventricular, well, I'll look, look, this is a four-chamber view. This is left ventricle. This is the right ventricle. Unfortunately, we don't have good enough depth resolution to resolve the atria. 
This is a vertical long axis image through the right ventricle. Very nice separation. Here's a vertical long axis through the left ventricle. I'm sorry I cut off the apex here, but here you see the left ventricle. There's no overlapping right ventricle. Short axis images at the apex, the mid ventricle, and the base. Very exquisite view of wall motion. There's this three-dimensional surface shaded image, which is sort of neat to look at. You can rotate this around uh, on the computer console. I can't do it here, but I'll show you. Here's looking at the lateral view. You get a nice isolated view of the left ventricle laterally. Here, if you want to look at the right ventricle, nice isolated view of the right ventricle. And you get this wireframe model of the right ventricle and the left ventricle. Uh, it's very important that you do quality control on these images. Look at the tracking of the left ventricle and the right ventricle. Uh, because if you have a low count density study, this tracking can be erroneous and your values are completely off uh, for ejection fractions and volumes. I would say in our lab, probably about 20% of our studies uh, are inadequate in terms of tracking, and you have to just look at them visually. Uh, in this case, uh, we got an ejection fraction of 79%. Again, we're able to get the volumes, 105 cc's diastole, 22 systole. We get a right ventricular ejection fraction of 53%, diastolic volume, systolic volume. This is a rather naive, uh, easy question. Why is the left ventricular ejection fraction and the right ventricular ejection fraction different? Why doesn't the patient just blow up and explode? Well, it's not the ejection fractions that have to match, it's the stroke volumes that have to match. Okay, here's an abnormal study. Ventricle is obviously dilated. Here we can see that the apex is markedly hypokinetic. Right ventricle is contracting very well. Here we see diffuse hypokinesis, more marked at the apex and the anterior wall, no overlapping right ventricle to worry about. Here you can see the septum is akinetic, akinetic, and here actually maybe a little dyskinetic. Very nice images. Here's a three-dimensional model looking down on the left ventricle. Laterally. And here's the right ventricle that's contracting very nicely. Here's our wireframe model. Right ventricle looks good, left ventricle looks terrible. Again, check on your regions of interest to make sure that they're tracking the endocardial borders. And here the left ventricular ejection fraction, 18%. Diastolic volume 170, systolic volume 139, RVEF 46, 154, and 84 cc's. So, how do, which, which ejection fraction do we use? Well, despite this being a volumetric technique and being quite robust, planar gated blood pool imaging is still considered the gold standard. So, even if you're doing gated blood pool spect, 
the standard technique, and I, this isn't an ASNIC guideline, but it's just a general guideline, is that you still do your 32 frame per cardiac cycle LAO planar image to get your ejection fraction. And then you use these, the SPECT imaging to supplement that with your volumes, your right ventricular information. Generally, they correlate quite well, generally. Okay, so how good is SPECT gated blood pool imaging in assessing the right ventricle? Uh, this is a study from Ken Nichols in the Journal of Nuclear Cardiology, 2002. And he looked at 15 patients with primary pulmonary hypertension and 13 patients with tetralogy of Fallot. And he correlated the SPECT gated blood pool right ventricular ejection fraction with MRI, which is considered the gold standard, although I'm not so sure how gold standard it is because of difficulties in assessing the valve plane. But anyway, it's a gold standard. And if you look at the correlations of right ventricular ejection fraction, quite similar with no significant difference. Right ventricular end diastolic volumes, the same, no difference. Right ventricular end systolic volumes, the same, without any significant difference, and very good R values in terms of correlation. So although it's really hard to say what's the gold standard for a right ventricular ejection fraction, uh, the spec-gated blood pool technique does appear to be quite robust, at least compared to MRI. So I think that's the last slide for some reason, it doesn't. So I think uh, we've got three minutes left. So um, I uh, believe so, uh, we have a break right now. So. Yep, we're gonna take a 15 minute break. We'll meet back here in 15 minutes.